Good morning. Our reading is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me. In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me from, for John the Baptist with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, at this time, restore the kingdom to Israel. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. And when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Then Jesus, who was taken up from you, this Jesus, you, in, you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are diving into the book of Acts today, and I'm so excited about it. But before we do, I do just want to take uh, a minute or two to celebrate all that God's been doing. Uh, in the last year, we're entering our, our four year, uh, as fourth year as a church now, as Caleb mentioned. And I just want to take a minute to praise God for his faithfulness and his provision, uh, for the power that we've seen over and over again, even in uh, this last year. Um, for example, uh, this time last year, and we're, we're really not about numbers, we never talk about this, but this time last year in this room, we were averaging 132 people. And now, this past month, we're averaging 245 people. Um, you don't, don't have to clap yet, but we'll, we'll get there, don't worry. Um, and and uh, we have 290 chairs in here, so we have room for growth. Everybody's like, when are we going to two services? Let's just like, let's stay as long as possible, okay? Let's just be together as long as, as possible, but we'll see what God does this year. Never know. Uh, but we don't just celebrate the fact that God's growing us in number. We really do celebrate and we emphasize that God is growing us in relationships and community as well. So this time last year we had um, eight uh, missional communities, and we've really been praying that God would double that this year. That's really where life is done together. And, uh, and by God's grace, uh, we'll have 16 in the next couple of months. We have 14 now. We'll have two more launching in two months. And so I just want to honor Caleb, Pastor Caleb and Katie. Um, you can clap for them. Um, and uh, basically all summer has been trying to identify and train new leaders. And God has just in his grace given us more and more new leaders. We're so, so grateful for that. Um, we also launched our weekly outreach this past year to Southside and Brook Hill. And uh, we launched that uh, weekly outreach by doing our first ever Queen City Sports Camp. 
uh, which was Jonathan and his team. We just honored, honor all of those people again. Um, man, God has done so much there already. We, we saw 13 people get saved that week. Um, we have the weekly Saturday pop-ups that were engaging those kids. Um, and I'm not sure how many were there yesterday, but I know that um, we're, we're just praying that God brings them and brings more. Um, he's given us favor at Mariji Davis in a way that has blown our minds because Mariji Davis has never welcomed a church in their school before. And they have just opened the doors for us. And so we are serving them and we're there for the long haul. And we're, we're playing the long game and just going to love and serve them as best we can. Excited about that. Um, he's continued to draw people to himself. He's continued to show off his power to save. We've continued to baptize this past year. And, and all of it is to his glory, to his uh, honor to his praise. Um, and then also I want to tell you that this coming year we are taking on, actually we've already done, done it, we're taking on our first ever global partner. Our first ever global church plant is Redeemer Queens Park in northwest London. Um, stay tuned for more information about that and for Thomas West who's the pastor there and for his team because we're planning a trip in 23 that we're going to go over there and serve them and encourage them in as many ways as possible. Um, so excited about that. Listen, guys, God has called us to be faithful, and I just want to close this, and we're going to get to Acts. Um, I, I hesitate to even say these things, but I do it because we, we, we're praising God. We're not, we're not praising us, but God has called us to be faithful. I mean, that is the only thing he's called us to be, is just be faithful stewards. Um, he has promised to produce the fruit, but get this. He did not promise to produce it in our lifetimes. And so... The fact that we get to experience fruit is a special gift. It's a unique joy. It's a unique privilege. And I don't take it for granted. And we as a church shouldn't take it for granted that we get to see the fruit of the harvest and that we get to reap this harvest. It's incredible. And so and as we enter into year four, we are giving him the glory for this joy that he's given us. For the people who've come to Christ, who are far from Christ, even in this last year. I was talking to one guy who's leading a missional community up at university now. He's just uh, about to step into that leadership role. This is the group that he got saved at last year. Like, isn't that incredible? That's not us. That's God. And so we just give him all the praise and all the glory for this. And as we enter year four, we're praying for even more of it. Amen? So I'm glad that you're here, whether this is your, you know, I guess you've been here from the very beginning, or this is your very first Sunday ever. Welcome. And with that being said, let's get into the book of Acts. Honestly, I can't think of a better way to enter a new... Oh, we should thank God. We should praise God. Sorry. Wow. I, I held off on the praise because I was saving it to the end, and then I totally forgot. So, praise God. All right. Get your Bibles out. Go to the book of Acts if you're not there yet. I want to start out by showing you the second most famous painting that has ever been painted. It's Starry Night by uh, Vincent Van Gogh. If you didn't know it, it's second only to Da Vinci's Mona Lisa or Da Vinci's Cher, if that's how you refer to it as I do in my house. We just watched Heavyweights, if you know, you know. Um, it, it was painted by Vincent Van Gogh in June. Uh, June of 1889, and it's a depiction of his view every morning at sunrise with the addition of an imaginary little village down there. One of the best books I read this past year was a book called Range by uh, David Epstein, and 
In it, he tells what I think is a really fascinating story of Vincent Van Gogh leading up to the, the painting of this incredibly famous picture. I'll give it to you in a nutshell. See if you think it's as fascinating as I do. The first time Vincent Van Gogh ever tried to draw anything, he tried to draw his family's cat. It was so bad that he destroyed it and said he would never draw again. As a teenager, he sold paintings for his uncle who had recently been knighted and who owned a really successful art dealership because in his mind, if he couldn't make art, he would try to sell art. But the problem with that was that he was also really bad at selling art. He struggled with anger, he struggled with tact, and he didn't know how to deal with people in high society when they disagreed with him, and so he was fired from that as well. So he became a teacher at a boarding school. And I'm, I'm really condensing this a lot. Okay, so if you're like a true historian out there, don't get mad at me, all right? There's more. He worked 14-hour days at this school, did everything for them, including their handiwork. Um, but like drawing and like art dealing, he failed at that as well. So at this point in his life, he was obsessed with religion. And he thought that maybe since he couldn't draw art and he couldn't deal art and he couldn't teach e either, he thought that maybe he should become a missionary to South America. His parents were able to talk him out of that, and so he decided to become a pastor instead, which is like, this is last resort stuff, you know. It's great. Um, the only problem, though, is that he wasn't a great preacher, and he wasn't good at Greek, and he wasn't good at Latin, so yet again, Vincent Van Gogh failed. He had to find a new path. So at this point in his life, he decided to become an itinerant minister, and he spent every ounce of his strength uh, trying to catechize the youth in his region. The only problem, though, was that he stunk at that too, and none of the kids listened to him. And so again, his ministry was over, and again, he was a failure. At the age of 27, Vincent Van Gogh was despondent. Once again, he was directionless. He felt like it was time for his life to start getting going, but in a lot of ways he was like a bird stuck in a cage and every time he tried to fly, he'd just bang up against the cage and he'd fall backwards. He knew he was good for something, but he just couldn't figure out what that something was. He'd been a student, an art dealer, a teacher, a prospective pastor, an itinerant missionary, but after all kinds of spectacular starts, he had failed at every single thing he had ever put his hands to. So his brother tried to convince him to become a carpenter. His sister tried to get him to become a baker. His mom tried to get him to do something in nature because he was obsessed with nature and he was always walking around and just looking at trees and birds. But after getting all of their great advice, he decided that he was going to become a sketch artist. This time, though, no, he was still a failure. <laughs> he was 33 years old when he started art school, and get this, he was so bad that his art teachers told him that he needed to go down to the 10-year-olds and take lessons with them. And so he quit. After two weeks, he realized that he wasn't any good. His uncle told him that his art would never be sold. His boss told him, and I quote, of one thing I am sure, you are no artist. He was done. He realized he couldn't draw, couldn't do watercolor, couldn't copy any of the styles that he had tried so desperately to master. But then, at the age of 35, which I had just turned 36 a little while ago, so this is, this, I'm like in this story. At the age of 35, just two years after he was told to learn art with the 10-year-olds, he made the astonishing discovery 
that he could paint. Only not in a style that he had ever painted before, and not in any of the ways that he had failed to master before, but in a style that he had come up with in his own imagination. He wasn't good at forms, he wasn't good at detail, he wasn't good at realism, but he could do that. And a whole new era of art began. David Epstein ends it like this. He said, that starry night, along with scores of other paintings in his new style, the one that he devised amid a succession of failures, would launch a new era of art and inspire new conceptions of beauty and expression. Works that he dashed off in hours as experiments over the final two years of his life would become some of the most valuable objects culturally and monetarily that have ever existed in the world. The fledgling artist became an icon, and the icon eventually changed the world forever. And I love stories like that because they have a unique and a powerful way of shedding new light on things that otherwise I would just take for granted. Uh, Before I read that story, I would have looked at Starry Night, and I just would have shrugged my shoulders. Like, some of you guys are artists in this room. Some of you girls are artists in this room, and maybe that's heresy, but for me, that's just a painting. I feel like I could do that. Like, not that big of a deal. And then I, I read this story, and after learning about the journey that led up to it, it my whole perspective changes. I, I actually find it marvelous. I find it compelling. I even find it inspirational. I'm the same age as Vincent Van Gogh when he realized he was a painter. And so I read this story and I'm like, wow, what's still out there for me to discover? Like, what's still out there for me to learn and create and innovate? Oh, it's, it's inspirational. Guys, that's what good history does. That's what good biography is meant to do. Listen, good history wasn't just written to tell us about what happened way back then. Good history was written to capture our imaginations about what could happen here and now. Good biography is the same way. Good biography wasn't just written to tell us about all of the people who came before us. Good biography was written to inspire us to follow in their footsteps. And this is what I love about the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is the best history and it is the best biography that has ever been written. It's the history of how Christ built his church, and it's the biography of the men and women who joined him in the process. And the reason it's so incredible is because the main goal of the book of Acts isn't just to give us a bunch of information. The main goal of the book of Acts is to invite us into the action. It doesn't just want to show us what God did back then. It wants us to dream about what God could do now. Not just with those people, but with us. Maybe some of you look at the church like I used to look at Starry Night, and you just kind of shrug your shoulders. Doesn't look that impressive, honestly. It kind of looks like a kid could have drawn it with their crayons or markers or whatever. I think my nine-year-old son, Nicholas, could have drawn Starry Night. And you look at the church, and you're like, man, what's so great about the church? What's so cool about that? Maybe you've been in church for so long, you're just kind of numb to it now, bored with it, over it. Let me tell you something. As you see the journey of the church traced through the book of Acts, your perspective is going to change. 
Some of you maybe look at the church and you're not unimpressed, but you are definitely skeptical. Like, how many pastors have you seen fall? Just in the last year, last two years. How many churches have you seen fail? How many leaders have you seen become rich at the expense of the poor? You're not bored with the church, but you're definitely feeling a little defeatist. It's not that you think the church is unimpressive. It's just that you're not sure if it can be trusted anymore. The book of Acts was written to give people like you and people like me, because that's how I feel a lot of times, hope. And as we trace the journey of the church through this book, we're, we're going to be rescued from a defeatist attitude again. Some of you aren't bored. Some of you aren't skeptical either. Some of you just have no idea how you fit into all of this. Like you're not a pastor. You're, you're not a missionary. You're not a counselor. You're not working for some kind of NGO. And as far as you know, church is just something that you're a part of. It's something that you do. It's a group of friends. It's a gathering on a Sunday morning. But that's about it. And you're not really sure what else it has to do with your life. And again, I promise you as we trace the journey of the church through the book of Acts, as we read the biographies of these early Christians, your vision for the church and your vision for your life is going to be radically transformed. It's not just meant to show us how God used all of those people back then. It's meant to show us how God could use you here and now. There are so many incredible stories that we're going to see in this book, but we're going to start out with the first 11 verses because they're really a microcosm of everything that follows. They set us up for everything that's going to happen in the rest of the book. So if you have your Bibles open, look back at verse 8, and I'll show you exactly what I mean. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's a microcosm of the entire book of Acts. The gospel of Christ spreading to the ends of the earth through the people of Christ, or the witnesses of the gospel which are in the church. Now, if you've been in church for a while, and I know some of you have, if you haven't been in church in a while, this is brand new, man, you're in for an amazing ride. But if you've been in church for a while, it is easy to breeze over Acts 1-8 because you have heard it so many times. Like this is one of those passages like Matthew 28, the Great Commission, that you have heard so many times, you're sick of it. You're like, I get it, I'm supposed to make disciples. I get it, I'm supposed to be about the master's work, I'm supposed to be advancing the gospel of the kingdom and all of this kind of stuff. Let's just move on to the narrative, let's get into the good stuff and you just kind of skip over it. But I want to stop here, especially if you've been in church for a while, because I believe Acts 1-8 is probably the craziest verse in the entire Bible. Like it is wild, and I say crazy in like the real sense of the word crazy. Just think about it for a second. The world is 0% Christian at this point in time. Uh, the Greeks think the gospel is stupid. The Jews think the gospel is heresy. The Romans think the gospel is insurrection. Who knows what the barbarians think? We haven't tried to talk to them yet, okay? The, the world is 0% Christian. There is no such thing as a nominal Christian who shows up to church to get some social collateral, right? That does not exist Yet, nobody thinks Jesus is a great guy and a great teacher at this point in time. He's just the Jew that was hung up on the cross. And nobody knows anything else about him. 
The world is entrenched in centuries of pagan religion. It's hostile to anything that would undermine Rome as the ultimate empire and Caesar as the ultimate king. And yet Jesus says, I want the whole earth to be saturated with news of me and my kingdom. Get busy. It's the craziest verse in the whole Bible. It could be like someone trying to start a business or launch a brand and expect every single person in the world to know about it. Like not even Facebook has that kind of reach. I looked it up this past week. There are 8 billion people on the planet. Facebook's only got three of them. I mean, got a lot of work to do, Mark, you know. Five billion people aren't engaged. I would say they're the lucky ones though, right? Could you imagine trying to start a worldwide movement without the internet? Could you imagine trying to start a worldwide global phenomenon without trains or planes or cars or multicultural training or the printing press? Like you don't even have books. That's what Jesus is asking his followers to carry out. To me, this is crazy. Now, historians would argue that there were only about 200 million people on planet Earth at this point in time, but still, it, it seems like a pipe dream. This is what makes it even crazier to me, though. It's not just that Jesus expected the announcement of his kingdom to make its way all the way to the ends of the earth. It's that he chose these men and these women to be the ambassadors who carried the message. They were lower class, they were uneducated, they were disobedient, thick-headed, power-grabbing, backstabbing, cowardly disciples. So afraid that every single one of them fled from Jesus, one of them so fast he lost his clothes. One of them, who was going to end up being the like, best preacher of the church, denied Jesus three times because a servant girl was scaring him by the fire. It's one thing to launch a global movement. It's another thing to launch one with this band of proven failures. And yet, as we're going to see, as we go throughout this book and we trace the journey of the church, somehow they actually manage to do it. I love how one author put it when he said this, Adrian Rogers. He said, the book of Acts is the story of success. It's the story of a church triumphant. Really, it's the story of a small group of unlettered, uncultured people with meager resources, very little money, no prestige, no colleges, no seminaries, no radio or television, no printing presses, no magnificent buildings. A small little group of people who went out to tell the story of a publicly executed Jew. They went out against great obstacles, the imperial might of Rome, the intellectual sophistication of Greece, the religious bigotry of that day, and they turned that world inside out and upside down for Jesus Christ. So the big question that I want to answer today, because this is the microcosm, this is what sets us up for the whole book, is how in the world did that happen? How did these cowardly, disobedient, uneducated, unqualified people all of a sudden become the greatest gospel messengers the world has ever seen? How did that happen? How did Peter go from denying the Lord three times to preaching a sermon that literally compelled thousands of people to convert to Christ in a second? How did that happen? How did Thomas go from doubting the Lord to dying for the Lord? 
If you look at church history, every single one of these guys, except for John, was executed for spreading the message of Jesus. In fact, the word witness, you can circle it if you want. You will be my witnesses. It's the word martis in Greek. It's the word we get martyr from. And the reason we got this word martyr from that word is because so many of the witnesses were killed for preaching Christ. How did these cowards become death-defying lions? That's what the book of Acts is all about. These first 11 verses give us a snapshot of an answer. So let me show you three things that are really, I'm just going to scratch the surface. I'm just going to whet your appetite. Okay, because we got 28 chapters. And we're going to go really deep in for 28. So we're going to scratch the surface today. Three things that transformed the disciples and enabled them to carry out the mission of God. First, Jesus gave them proof that eradicated their doubts. Look back at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That word proof in the Greek, Aristotle defined as something so convincing that it changes the way you live your life. It's not just saying you believe something, but it's being so convinced of something that you change everything about your life. That's what Jesus was doing for 40 days. He was convincing them that he was really alive. Because they didn't believe it. After the crucifixion, the disciples were done. It was game over. They weren't sitting on the metaphorical fence debating whether or not they should keep the message going. Like, the message was done. Jesus was dead. They weren't trying to find a way to start a religion or create a movement about their dead teacher. They were scared. They were hiding. And so Jesus had a lot of convincing to do. Look back at Luke 24, 36 and see how Luke describes this first scene. Luke 24. As they were talking, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened because they thought they saw a ghost. That's what's going on here. They weren't like expecting Jesus to come back. They thought it was over. They're convinced he's dead. They're consumed with doubt. And so verse 38, and he said to them, why are you afraid? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is really me. Touch me and see. Jesus is giving them proof that will change every aspect of their lives. And here's the principle that I want you to see that we're going to see over and over again as we go through this book. These original disciples were only able to carry out the mission of God because they were totally convinced of and enamored with the presence of a living, breathing, active, and working Jesus. That's where it started. They weren't just living off the memories of the past three years. They were making new memories with Jesus day after day. They weren't just telling stories of what he had done way back in the past. They were watching him work in the present tense. Their certainty of his presence in their lives transformed everything about them. Now, I want to pause here for a minute because I know some of you are thinking right now exactly what I have thought so many times in my life how are we supposed to be inspired by that? How are we supposed to follow in their footsteps and join in their mission when we haven't seen the same proofs? Any of y'all ever feel like that? Like, good for you, Peter. 
Like, I could get up and preach too if I had seen him, if I had touched his hands, if I had hugged him. How are we supposed to be inspired by this biography when the people in it get to experience Jesus in a way that we will never get to? How do we fit into all of this? So these are really good questions, and I want to encourage you that you are not the first person to ask them. I'm not the first person to ask them either. In fact, Theophilus was asking the same questions in the first century. The reason that we have the book of Acts is because this guy Theophilus hired Luke, who was a brilliant doctor and historian and thinker. He hired Luke to write the history and write the biography so that he could convince him that it was all true. I need proof. I need assurances. I need certainty that would help me out. How do I know this? How do I know that that's why we have Acts? Well, verse 1 shows us, so look back at it with me. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. All right, let's stop there. Luke's hired by this guy, Theophilus, to write a history of the life and the ministry of Jesus. But that book was so long that it had to be divided into two parts. See, in the ancient world, they wrote histories on long pieces of papyrus. And it was so long, it would be 35 feet long. And then they'd roll it up in a scroll. And so once you got to the end of the 35 feet, your book was over. And so Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke. And he's writing about the words of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the life and ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he gets to the end of the 35 feet and he's like, I've run out of space. And so he rolls the scroll up and he starts part two. And part two is the book of Acts. I I don't know why our Bibles don't put them together, but they're really volume one and volume two of the same book. And he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, to try to convince him. This is a really fascinating thing. This is what's really cool. In the ancient world, whenever you had a two-volume set, the second volume always carried over the purpose of the first volume. So if you want to know why the book of Acts was written, you've got to go back to the book of Luke and figure out why that was written. And it's not hard work because Luke tells us why it was written. Look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. He says, Inasmuch as we, have, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who are from the beginning, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's why the Gospel of Luke was written. That's why the book of Acts was written. The purpose and the goal of this book is so that Theophilus and every single one of us who reads them will have certainty about the things that we have heard so that we might know for sure. What does that mean? Think about it like this. Jesus appeared to his disciples for 40 days and he gave them proof that eradicated all of their doubts. It led to the kind of certainty that changed every aspect of their lives. And then 
their transformed lives and their transcendent ministry became proof after proof after proof for every single one of us who would come after them that it was true so that you and I might have the same certainty. Guys, I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I've struggled with doubts. I, I got saved when I was 16. I'm 36 now, so I got 20 years in this, okay? 20 years of following Jesus. I've had plenty of time to wrestle with doubt. One of the most convincing things for me as I study, because doubt is like the ants in the pants of faith, as one of my friends puts it. It spurs us to study. It spurs us to find out. It spurs us to question. It spurs us to get the answers to our questions. Doubt is the ants in the pants of our faith. So one of the things for me when I was dealing with all these ants in my pants of doubt that really led to a strong faith was the life of the apostles. Every single one of them, as I mentioned earlier, except for John, was brutally tortured and killed. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stabbed to death. Andrew was hung on a cross. Thomas was tortured with red-hot plates, and then he was burned alive. Philip was tortured and crucified. Matthew was beheaded. Nathaniel was flayed and then crucified. James the Lesser was beaten to death with a club. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks. Matthias was stoned while hanging on a cross. John, the only one who didn't die, you're like, see, one of them didn't die. No, he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. But miraculously, he survived, and so they were just like, well, if you didn't die, we're just going to exile you to Patmos. And so he died in exile years later. These men had absolutely nothing to gain by creating a religion that would ensure their torture and their death. No, something had to change their minds. Something had to capture their imagination. Something had to embolden their hearts. Something had to redirect their longings. Something had to transform their ambitions. Something miraculous had to take these half-hearted cowards and turn them into death-defying lions. That miracle was that they saw the living Christ standing in front of them. He gave them proof so that their lives could be changed forever and we would have proof in them. That's why the book of Acts was written. So the first thing that we need to see, first thing that led to a successful mission was that the disciples were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was alive and well and that he was active and that he was living and working through them. You and I can be convinced of the same thing. You and I can follow in their footsteps. Second, Jesus gave them a power that exceeded their deficiencies. Verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Hudson Taylor once said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, listen, I've just given you an impossible mission, but don't worry because I'm going to give you a supernatural power. You don't have to rely on yourselves. We're going to talk about this so much in the months to come. Oh, it's going to be incredible. So I'm not going to get super deep into it here today, but the point is this. If we want to accomplish anything 
that has lasting spiritual impact, we have to have the, the power of the Spirit. If you want to do anything that's spiritual in the world that's going to actually last for all eternity, you have to have the Spirit. Nothing can be done apart from Him. We could have all the certainty in the world, but if we don't have the Spirit of God working through us, guys, we will be useless. Just think about the disciples. They've got the conviction. They've got the confidence. They've got the courage, and they're ready to go. And yet, they're still incompetent. They're still uneducated. They're still unqualified. They're still unprepared for the task at hand. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? Does Jesus tell them, okay, you've seen the proof. Now get out and tell everyone. No. He says, wait. Hold up. I know you're ready. I know you're pumped. But you can't do this. You need to wait. Because I'm going to give you a power. And until I give you that power, you can't do anything. The flip side of this is until he comes, we're powerless. Now listen, I... Uh, I'm going to try to demonstrate this here. Um, this cord is longer than I thought it was going to be, but I just want you to think about this power strip for a minute, okay? Now, um, this power strip has all kinds of components inside of it. Like electricity baffles me. I'm not a scientist. I know you're surprised. Um, but uh, I, I don't know what's going on in here, but it has everything it needs to give power to this light. And again, it's exciting. It's incredible. Um, ben Franklin, he's got a great name too. Um, everything that this light needs is, is inside of this power strip. And, and, uh, and I was thinking about this a lot. And I, and I was thinking about the fact that this isn't going to work. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I was thinking about light, and I was thinking about darkness, and I was thinking about the gospel and how ultimately that's what it is. And so light's in that, in that analogy that Jesus uses all the time. This could fail miserably. Just delete it from the video if it does. Um, everything's ready to go. Um, but, oh, there it goes again. All right, here we go. Let me, let me grab this thing here. Patience. Okay. As soon as this power strip decides to buy into its own hype and get real pumped up about how cool it is on the inside because there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And, and it decides to try to find power within and it decides to try to, to plug itself into itself. What happens? Well, nothing, of course. Nothing. Nothing happens. It, it's great. It's amazing. It was designed by a brilliant engineer. It was invented by a brain that I can't even fathom. This thing is so valuable and so incredible. Kings would have died for this 200 years ago. They would have killed, they would have gone to war for this 200 years ago. But as soon as it starts buying into its own hype and tries to find power within, it's got nothing. What does it have to do? It's got to find power without. It's got to connect to a source that is not itself. And then... Does it work? Almost. Hey! Woo! Then, then, the light gets to shine. It's not dark. Use your imaginations. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Okay, good. All right. This is why I never use props. Never again. 
Okay, okay, good, good. Now I have to find myself in here again. Where, where, where am I? Okay. Listen, guys, you see where I'm going with this, right? You're, you are actually wonderful and you are valuable because you were designed by God himself. You have all of the components that you need inside of you to carry out his mission, except the moment you try to plug within, the moment you try to find power within, the moment you start to think that you've got the resources within, guess what you become? Useless. You will accomplish nothing. Now, this is the opposite of what our culture is telling us. This is the opposite of everything that you're being told by, by Disney and, and all the other movie companies out there. They're telling you that if you want resources to accomplish something that's going to outlive you, that's going to make a difference in the world, all you've got to do is look within. And I promise you that that is the last place you need to look. If you and I want to follow in the footsteps of these apostles and if we want to continue this work of taking the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, we cannot look within. We have to find a power from outside of us. But this is the amazing thing. That power is a person. That power is the spirit of Jesus himself. And Jesus promised that he was going to put his spirit in us. And so what he's telling his disciples is, listen, remember that promise way back in John? Remember that promise that I told you? I'm going to leave you, but when I leave you, I'm going to give you a helper. I'm going to give you the paraclete. I'm going to give you my spirit, and it's going to be so much better for you because right now you just have a little bit of access of me, uh, but when I leave, you're going to have all of me. And every single one of you are going to have access to all of me all of the time. Now he's saying, hey, it's coming. In a couple of days, it's coming. Don't do anything until it comes. And the rest of the book of Acts is an outworking of the fact that they obeyed. The rest of the book of Acts is the outworking of the fact that they didn't believe they had power within, but they waited. And we're going to see it next week. The Spirit came like fire. And the Spirit consumed them. And the Spirit baptized them. And all of a sudden, they were able to do what no one else thought was possible. Guys, what if we really got the fact that everything that happened in the book of Acts happened because of the Spirit's power? What if we really believe that that same Spirit is working in and through us? The gospel of the kingdom didn't advance to the ends of the earth because the apostles were great. The gospel of the kingdom advanced to the ends of the earth because the Spirit of God was great in them. And that is so important to get because you might not realize you do this, but you do it. You put Paul on a pedestal. You put Peter on a pedestal. You do it. I do it too. More often than not, we think that they should get some credit for all that God accomplished in the world. They get no credit at all. We look at ourselves and we look at them and we compare ourselves. We're like, man, I'll never be as godly. I'll never be as devoted, I'll never be as talented, I'll never be as courageous, and then we just sit on the couch and we binge on Netflix and we do nothing. We waste our lives. What if we started walking with the Spirit? What if we actually started living in His power? Man, how, how much different would your life look? How much more incredibly vibrant would our city look? 
The book of Acts isn't just about how God used people back then. It's about how God wants to use you and me today as well. Amen? Do you believe that? You will by the time we're done. I don't know how long it's going to take. We'll see. All right, finally, he gave them a promise that eclipsed their discouragement. Acts 1.9, look at verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Guys, you can have certainty that erases all of your doubts, and you can have power that transcends your weakness, but what about your discouragement? Because I promise you something, the moment you start walking with Jesus and the moment you start getting out there in the harvest and you start trying to sow seeds of the gospel and you're picking up rocks, you're going to get discouraged. So what are you going to do with your discouragement along the way? What are you going to do when you realize no one wants to listen to your message? What are you going to do when you share the gospel day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and you don't see a convert? One of my heroes of the faith, Adoniram Judson, he was one of the, the, the first missionaries to, to India. Took him 16 years before he saw his first convert. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to deal with discouragement? What about the times when you're misunderstood and you're maligned because of Christ? I just think about the apostles and how they were hunted like prey and beaten and imprisoned and tortured and ultimately murdered for the sake of Christ. And I just think about how hard it would have been to live through all of that and watch their friends and family go through all of that as well. How are they supposed to deal with discouragement? They had the proof that the message was real. They had the power that actually would enable them to take that message to the ends of the earth. But I think they needed this promise to help them get through the journey. And the promise is simple. Jesus is coming back. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. In the same way as you saw him go up into heaven, he's coming back on the clouds and the cloud rider's coming back to conquer. He's coming back not as a humble little lamb. He's coming back as a warrior king. He's coming back. And when he does, he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to heal every wound. He's going to reward every deed. And so in their moments of discouragement, these men and these women would remind each other of this promise. In fact, if you read the New Testament, what do they talk about so much? Remember, remember, remember. They'd say things like the weight of suffering is as light as a feather on our backs compared to the weight of glory that awaits us in Christ. Remember it. Don't lose heart. Oh, don't be discouraged. Don't focus on the things of earth, but set your mind on the things of heaven because it's coming. Don't lose heart in doing good. Don't grow weary in the mission because one day you're going to reap the reward of your labor. And they would say these things over and over and over again. Guys, the reality of Christ's resurrection and the promise of Christ's return is what enabled those early Christians to persevere through times of discouragement, to keep on going even when it seemed like all hope was lost. And they sang in dungeon cells as a result. You ever wonder why Paul and Silas are singing in the dungeon? <laughs> Nothing's going right. Nothing's going well. 
And they're singing. This is why they rejoiced in their sufferings. This is why they worshipped in their afflictions. They had a promise that eclipsed their discouragement. You want to hear something really cool? Man, I love this when I read this. In the first century, between the first and second century, 150,000 Christians were, were buried in the Roman catacombs. About 15% of them were, were killed for, for Christ um, in, in, in brutal ways, as you've already heard. What's really fascinating to me about the, fa- uh, the catacombs, though, is the fact that um, if you've studied anything about the catacombs, you know that these Christians were drawing symbols and signs and pictures all through the catacombs. And we actually, to this day, can identify 10,000 of these drawings. And so you have 150 Christians buried, and then there's just this symbolic artwork all over these underground caverns. You want to know something that's crazy? This is what I thought was so cool about all of this artwork. Out of 10,000 drawings that we can still make out, not a single one of them have anything to do with the cross. Now, I know that sounds really weird because we're cross-centered people, and that's good, but hear me out. The cross didn't become a symbol until 340 A.D. when Christianity had overtaken Rome and it had totally flipped the population and 70% of the population, population was Christian. That's when the cross became a symbol of Christianity. Before that, the cross was not a symbol of Christianity. The cross was a symbol of death. The cross was what all their friends were being hung up on, all their family members were being crucified on. They weren't drawing pictures of crosses in the first and second century. Do you know what they were drawing? Pictures of deliverance, pictures of hope, pictures of resurrection. For example, if you know anything about church history, you know that one of Rome's favorite ways to kill Christians was to throw them in the arena with a bunch of lions. And all of the the multitudes would would gather around because Rome was sick and Rome was crazy, and they would cheer with glee as Christians were ripped to shreds by lions. And, And so 300 of the 10,000 images that you can still identify in the catacomb are, are Daniel raising his hands toward heaven with two lions sleeping at his feet. Because it was a promise that God's going to deliver. It was a promise that would give them hope in the midst of their suffering. One scholar put it like this. The Christians who painted in the catacombs knew the promise of abundant life. They surrounded themselves with reminders and memorials of God's deliverance in the miracles of Jesus. So again, I'll ask this question. How in the world did God take these cowardly, disobedient, unqualified men and women and make them the greatest gospel messengers in the history of the world? Proof that eradicated their doubts. Power that exceeded their deficiencies, a promise that eclipsed their discouragement. When you are discouraged in the mission, when you're not seeing fruit, when it seems like all you're doing is picking up rocks and picking up rocks and it feels like an exercise in futility, remember Christ is coming back. And he's coming back in victory and he's coming back in deliverance. And so their story is just the beginning. Everything that he gave to them, he has given to us. Everything he did through them, he can do through us as well. My prayer as we go through this book together is that we will become certain of that. 
My prayer is that that certainty would change every aspect of our lives. My prayer is that that certainty would change this city as well. Amen? All right, would you stand with me?